So we are in our series uh, from Ecclesiastes, uh, a wisdom book um, written by Solomon, uh, the wisest person to ever live apart from Jesus. Um, he was not just wise, but through his wisdom, he acquired all kinds of just anything he could ever uh, want to acquire, uh, the height of wealth. And so he used that wealth, that wisdom, uh, to pursue pleasure in everything, meaning in everything uh, under the sun. And he's given us this book, Ecclesiastes, where he declares all of it to be meaningless. Everything under the sun is meaningless. Um, and what he's doing is he's trying to draw our eyes above the sun, right? He's trying to say uh, everything, like, trust me, everything that the earth, the world has to offer is not going to fulfill you. And so he's trying to lift our eyes to God in whom we really find meaning and fulfillment. Uh, last week, we talked about wisdom and the meaninglessness of wisdom. Um, we said wisdom is meaningless under the sun, uh, but wisdom is still grace. And then we talked about how in Christ we find the wisdom of God. Uh, and so we talked about this wisdom as grace, this idea that uh, even those who are apart from God, who have no belief in God, uh, these common graces that we can experience just uh, on earth, as we um, live according to God's ways, uh, we will flourish. And so uh, in wisdom and in um, good stewardship of things, right, in, um, in temperance, all these different things that um, moral living, they all lead to human flourishing even apart from Christ. And so um, there's common grace in that, uh, but none of those things are saving. None of those things are eternal. And so uh, there is still grace in wisdom, um, and yet the true wisdom of God is found in Christ, uh, even called the wisdom of God. And he lived out perfectly the wisdom of God. And so we have this picture of God's wisdom in the person of Jesus. Uh, today we turn our attention to work or toil, as Solomon puts it. Uh, work is a big part of our lives. If you recall the survey I've referenced a few times uh, where uh, American adults seek um, meaning or fulfillment, um, one of the top answers was work or career. Uh, it's a big, big part of our lives. Uh, and it makes sense because work is uh, practically or chronologically a very large part of our lives, not just in significance, just how we spend our time. Uh, it's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life working. That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. It's a lot, uh, and it happens to also be um, that much time spent, one of the top regrets of people in their last days. Uh, as noted by palliative care and hospice specialist, Dr. Simran Malhotra, she was interviewed about what she has observed and learned from all of her dealings with people in their final days and final moments. Um, and the top three most common regrets, one of the top three that she listed, is having spent too much time on work rather than dedicating time to themselves or their families. And so it takes this big chunk of our time, our effort, our energy, and yet when death is imminent, work does not seem that important. But it consumes so much, right, of our calendar, our thoughts, um, our stress, our effort. So in time alone, work plays a big role in our lives, not to mention the significance uh, of the physical and the emotional and the mental, sometimes the spiritual toll that it takes uh, because of our jobs or our workplaces. Uh, so let's see what Solomon has to say then about work in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 18 through 26. <clears throat> he says, 
I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and the striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. <clears throat> so the first thing we gather from this passage, other than straight out of the gate saying he hated all his work, uh, is that work is meaningless. Work is meaningless. It shouldn't surprise us that the first point in nearly all of these messages is going to be insert pursuit here is meaningless because that's what Solomon has told us right from the start, that everything is meaningless or vanity. We know Solomon's going to say all these pursuits under the sun are meaningless because, again, that's what he says in chapter 1. But we want to look at why. That's why he writes all the other chapters, right? He could have just written chapter 1 and said, just trust me, trust me. But the rest of the chapters are kind of the fine print. Here's why all these things are meaningless, so that we can understand, oh, okay, so he really did pursue this, 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 and this. And here's what he found. Here's how he ran into futility, or how he uh, found un, uh, not fulfillment, right? He was not fulfilled in these things. And so the understanding hopefully helps us to avoid the same mistakes, but also helps us um, as we encounter others and want to minister into the brokenness around us that we can understand the futility of their pursuits. Because sometimes somebody may be searching for meaning in something, and we think, that, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, I don't know why you would look for meaning in that. But this wisdom can help us say, oh, okay, this is what that person's trying to do. They're trying to find meaning or significance in this pursuit um, because this is the angle that, that they think it's going to answer. And it helps us to minister into those things. Solomon straight up says that he hated all of his work under the sun. Because in his wisdom, he knows that everything he's worked for, everything he's built up, is going to be left to someone else. He can't take it with him. Now, in his case, he's literally talking about the physical things that he has built, palaces, gardens, treasure. He's not thinking of the significance of his influence so much, like his legacy, right? He's thinking about my stuff, like all this stuff that I've made and built and won or earned. He's going to give it to someone else. It's going to go to someone else. He knows he can't take any of it with him. Someone else is going to get it, all of it, right? Ancient Egyptians believed that they could take things with them. So they were buried with their favorite stuff. Uh, I think this is ironic because they believed the afterlife to be better than this world, but they thought, I better take my favorite stuff with me just, I don't know, just in case the afterlife isn't that great, the stuff that made this world as great as it could be, I'm going to need it in the next life. 
I'm thinking if it's really that much better, you don't need to take great stuff, right? All the stuff there will be better than what you could take. We won't need it. But Solomon knows, I can't take any of this stuff with me. All of his mountains of wealth, palaces, gardens, etc. It's all going to go to somebody else. And even considering that it can be passed down to his family, right? Someone he could pick, like he could find someone, a successor to say, uh, I'm going to give it all to you if he deems them worthy, right? Even then, Solomon is very wise. He says, I don't know how long it will take, even if I choose a wise person to pass my stuff to, how many generations will it take before a fool inherits all of this? Eventually that could happen. And so he's saying, it's all meaningless. Why am I doing all this if it's just going to get passed on to some idiot, basically, is what he's saying. He's also upset at the basic math of the situation. Look at verse 21. He's upset at the idea of leaving everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. He applied all of his great wisdom and toiled and produced and earned and amassed great wealth only to give it to someone else who didn't do anything. Not only is this meaningless vapor, as he's been saying, but a great evil. I can't remember if it was, was it Jerry Seinfeld or Shaq? One of these like super rich guys would tell their kids like, no, 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 we're not rich. I'm rich, right? Uh, you have a rich dad. You're not rich. Um, basically, that idea of I earned this. This is mine. You benefit from it. And so Solomon says this is a great evil to consider that someone who did nothing to build or earn any of this is going to inherit all of this. All that work earns or produces is ultimately useless if this is the end game. So what about finding meaning in our work, right? Not so much in the produce or the, the benefits, the income. What about through our work, the work that we do? Can we find meaning in that? Simply the joy of doing something we love. Sometimes our jobs are referred to as our vocations, which comes from the term for calling. You can hear it in, in the VOCA, right? It's like vocal or almost like the Spanish, boca, right? There's calling in vocation. Calling meaning this is what you were meant to do, right? Often people find themselves in a job or career that they really think is fulfilling because they love it so much or they feel like they're making a difference in the world. I would put this in the category of common grace. Apart from Christ, that's a common grace. To feel like you're just really in the sweet spot and getting to get paid to do what you love to do or something that you think is really what you're wired to do or makes an impact in the world. They're both great. But apart from Jesus, in light of eternity, they're just the upside of a losing situation. There's no eternal significance in this quote-unquote fulfillment. If it all remains under the sun and lasts only as long as this temporary world. Often, even this common grace fulfillment is elusive. Not everybody gets to work at a job that they just love and find fulfillment in uh, as their calling, right? Just like spiritual work, right, apart from Jesus, won't fulfill us. Just so our work in this world, apart from Jesus, won't really fulfill us. But our jobs or, or work, even when fulfilling, according to those standards, can still be a big source of stress in our lives. This is the second point. Work is a stressor. Work is a stressor. This understatement is such a prevalent reality that the idea shows up in pop culture all the time. From Johnny Paycheck's anthem, take this job and shove it, to the time to make the donuts guy from the old commercials, with the monotony of day in, day out, just making donuts. 
to movies like Office Space and Dolly Parton's song, Nine to Five, where she declared, working nine to five, what a way to make a living, barely getting by. It's all taken and no giving. They just use your mind and they never give you credit. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. Solomon puts it this way, chapter 2, verse 23. All his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Not a word that I use every day. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. There's a sense of stress, anxiety, uh, staying up all night because of this work. Work has become worry to him, right? Work for many is this necessary evil. At the very least, it's just something that we do to, uh, to survive, to pay the bills, but sometimes it's so stressful that it keeps us up at night. It's a vexation, whether it's the bills or the stress of the job, the relationship between the two. It might be relationship dynamics in the workplace or this looming threat of my job could be taken away for some reason. I could lose it. It could be just finding yourself in a high-stress job that takes a lot out of you, even on a good day, right? There's just jobs that are just stressful. It's hard. It's draining. There's a lot of factors, most of them outside of our control, that make a job stressful. Even the world apart from God recognizes this and recommends a healthy work-life balance, right? Again, under the sun, apart from Christ, apart from God, the world sees this stress and says, There's, this is not good for a person to live with work as vexation, to lose sleep at night, right? The world recognizes that. This is what I've been, without even bringing Jesus into the picture, people with no belief in any God recognize that work is stress can have really negative effects on you. But what about Christians? We understand that the, the world can seek significance in these things and not find fulfillment. So those of us who do believe in the God of the Bible or want to follow what he says, how should we view work? We should recognize that this stress and the downside of work are results of sin entering the world. Work is cursed. Note I did not say that work is a curse. I said, work is cursed, because the world is cursed. We read this in Genesis 3, 14 through 19, when sin entered the picture. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten to, of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, <clears throat> for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We see a lot of consequences here when Adam and Eve sinned. But with regard to work, the work that Adam had already been doing, it would now be cursed and marked by difficulty, straining, striving, sweat, not enjoyable. It would still be necessary, but now it's difficult or a stressor. So how should we view work in light of eternity? I mentioned a moment, ago that, a moment ago that work is not a curse, but that work is cursed. That's because God commissioned Adam to work, 
when all was still very good in the garden, before sin entered the picture. As Adam worked, fulfilling his commissioning from God, his work then became a form of worship, or another way to glorify God. And that's how we should view work, as a means of worship. This is point number three. In Christ, work is worship. See, Adam was not just given work to do. He was given a purpose to fulfill, and work was part of that. If this is your purpose, this is the mission I'm sending you on, there's work required as part of your mission. So his identity is tied to his mission for God, not in the work he's doing. He was to cultivate and subdue the earth and be fruitful and multiply. Work is inherent in this mission. Work, therefore, is not bad. It's not a curse. It's an integral part of living for God. And to clarify, we're talking about work, vocation, career, right? We're not talking about spiritual works, um, trying good works, good deeds. That's a whole separate ballgame. We're given rest from those as well in Christ. That's a whole separate message. But this idea of work being a part of life and being able to, full, to enjoy it as part of our mission from God Solomon points to this fulfillment a little bit in Ecclesiastes 2, 24 through 26. He writes that there is nothing better than rejoicing in food and drink and enjoying work. This is like the pleasures that God has allowed man to enjoy. He's saying this only comes from the hand of God. It's God's gifting and by God's grace that we enjoy these things. Work is a way to honor God and live for him. I believe because work was a part of life before the fall, that work will be part of our life in eternity, in the new earth. I think it will be the most fulfilling work we've ever done. And it will reflect the fact that our God is a God who works. He creates, he serves, he does. He is not only a God of rest, and we're not only to be a people of just rest, right? We will work, we will create, we will serve for eternity. It's not a curse to work, but work is cursed right now. With this eye toward work is worship then. We're recognizing that we're all commissioned all the time to be ambassadors for Jesus. When we're at work, we should recognize we're on a mission field. Even in Christian workplaces, I've, worked in, uh, I've only worked in Christian workplaces. Uh, plenty of ministry to do in those places, I can tell you. Um, we should see the people around us as image bearers, uh, some, many, or most of whom are lost, separated from God in their sin. So before we start pondering a, a call or a, you know, a, a commission, a mission to some foreign land, let's remember and recognize that God has implanted us in a sea of, of lost souls, day in and day out, where we live, where we work, where we play. We should navigate the workplace with gospel eyes and gospel ears, watching and listening for brokenness, in others and considering how the gospel speaks into these areas of brokenness. Instead of just somebody's telling me about their day and blah, 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 and they're so lost and confused and you know, they're never going to find fulfillment in that thing, uh, those are moments where we can say, oh, I, I can see where you have misplaced your hopes and dreams and aspirations. Uh, and as someone who we talk about gospel fluency, sometimes we, we can speak the gospel truth into that situation right? We need to move from, not that it's a wrong message, but from just the simplicity of like, you're a sinner. What would you say if you died tonight? What would you tell St. Peter at the gates? Like, move just from that because that, that's hard to work into lots of conversations, right? You can't just sit down and talk to somebody at the water cooler and just 
so if you died tonight, like, what would you tell Peter, right? But usually it's like, man, my kids are driving me crazy, or like the car's in the shop again, and I don't know, it's all this kind of stuff. And so you can't respond to those with, if you died tonight, or it's because you're a sinner and you're going to hell. And so how do you speak like your hopes, your identity, your dreams are tied to something that's not Jesus? And so if I'm in Christ, then I listen with gospel ears and I speak gospel peace and truth into those situations to say that Jesus is really the answer to everything. But you can't just slap a Jesus Band-Aid on something and say, that's your sin and you need Jesus. But you're looking for fulfillment for, for recognition, for identity, for worth, for meaning in something outside of Christ. And so you're going to fall short every time. And yes, this world is hard, and I may not have an answer. Like, why would Jesus allow this suffering or this tragedy or this trial? I don't know. We don't know. But I know that if we walk through these tragedies and trials and difficulties by faith, we can become more like Jesus. We identify more with Jesus who suffered. That's what we read in Scripture from those who are following Jesus. And so we should navigate not just the workplace, but everywhere we go with this kind of perspective and mindset, surrounded by lostness, surrounded by brokenness. Another kind of practical aspect of this is how should Christians view work is pursue excellence. Like, be a good employee. Be good at your job. Um, if you're a follower, be a good follower. If you're a leader, be a good leader, right? We're representing Christ and his kingdom in these relationships. And so treat people uh, as image bearers and treat people the way the kingdom asks us to treat them. And so there's practicality to this as well. If work is worship, then how I conduct myself at work is uh, as a representative and ambassador of God's kingdom. And so there's worship in that as well, just uh, trying to pursue excellence in what we do. We also bring glory to God when we, when we use our gifts, the gifts he's given us to honor him. If you can get paid to do this, awesome. This is another kind of reference to that calling. Like when you get to get paid to do what God has designed you to do, that's kind of a sweet spot in life. It's not everybody gets to do that. <clears throat> Still find a way, though. If you don't get paid to do it, find a way to use those gifts, right? Uh, even just for free because God has given you those things. You remember Eric Liddell, the Scottish runner about whom the movie Chariots of Fire was made, uh, an old movie with a classic soundtrack. Um, Liddell was a devout Christian, and he was a missionary, uh, but he's also a runner at the highest level. He competed in the 1924 Olympics. Um, his Christianity, though, there was a, a race on a Sunday, and he wouldn't run in it because of his beliefs. And so, his, again, he's prioritizing, right, his identity as a follower of Christ above his identity as a runner. There's a scene in the movie, and I don't know that he actually said this in real life, because in real life, I think he said, God made me for China, uh, which is his mission field that he was going to. But in the movie, he says, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. So there's a sense here in which Eric Liddell is saying, uh, my identity is not wrapped up in the work that I do. My identity is not wrapped up in being an Olympic runner. And yet I recognize God has given me this great gift, and I want to use that. When we use the gifts God has given us, it's, it brings glory to him. It's another act of worship. <clears throat> this is work as worship. Using your unique design to do things well for God, for his glory. He didn't find his meaning, his purpose in running. But he recognized this is from the Lord. 
and the Lord is pleased when I use this gift. When our work points us or others to God, we're practicing for eternity, right? We're using work as worship. Consider how you can point others to Jesus through work. Consider how God has designed you. What gifts and abilities has he given you that wired you with that maybe you aren't using? If there's not a way to use them in your work, how can you use them outside of work, right? Because in Jesus, we'll live forever, which means we'll work forever. Sometimes that makes us go, oh, I'm going to work forever. But it'll be fulfilling, rewarding. It'll be the sweet spot of, uh, of vocation, of calling. It won't be cursed by this vexation that we read about on earth. The best approach to the meaninglessness of work, then, is to turn our work into worship. Let's pray. God, thank you again for just the truth of your word. Thank you for this kingdom perspective that we can apply to, uh, to work, to vocation, uh, to what we find ourselves doing day in and day out. That sometimes um, the vexation, the stress, the toil, um, the striving that we do just to get by, God, that there's a bigger picture here. Um, you're not giving us just a, a, a hamster wheel to run on um, until we die. Um, there is futility in that. There is meaninglessness in that. But you've called us to, to represent your kingdom in our workplace and through our vocations and um, to do uh, all of our work as unto you, we read in Scripture, whatever we find ourselves doing, to do it to the glory of God. And so, God, I pray that uh, you would help us to be, to be excellent at our jobs, to, uh, to be good employees, to be good managers, to be good co-workers, be good citizens, good neighbors, because it's all a means, again, of advancing your kingdom and representing you the way, as early Christians called it, the way of life in Christ. God, thank you for uh, examples we have in, in life of people who, uh, who work and who do amass great wealth, and, uh, and yet they're generous, and they love you, and they show us that their, their identity and their hopes and dreams are not tied to these things because they know they can't take it with them, God. So uh, help us not to, uh, to aspire to that, to, to not tie our hopes and dreams to, um, to our finances or our work. That in our final moments, we wouldn't have the regret that so many have that uh, we just spent too much time working and not enough time just loving people, investing in others. Help us, Lord, to turn our work into worship, to lift our perspective above the sun. and to walk as you have called us to walk. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.